0: Hello and welcome to the show, I'm your host Jason Knight and on this episode we speak about the promised land of product market fit. Do companies really have product market fit when they think? What are some of the ways product companies can ensure product success? How can you set up your teams to make sure you deliver effective products? And most importantly, how does someone get the best product visionary award and can we see it? For answers to all these questions and more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Harpal Singh, product management consultant, interim CPO, with strong expertise in building and scaling SaaS AI platforms, allergic to poor LinkedIn content, which I'm going to try not to take personally, recent author of The Elusive Art and Science of Finding Product Market Fit, also proud holder of the trophy for Best Product Visionary 2019. Hi Harpal, how are you?
1: I'm very good, Jason. How are you doing? Thank you for the intro.
0: No problem. I, I, as I say to many people, I put as much effort into the intro as possible, so that the rest of the uh, the rest of the episode can just be a downhill uh, slide.
1: You you make me sound a lot
0: better than I am. <laughs> that is at least fifty percent of my job. <laughs> well, you're doing a great one then. So first things first, best product visionary 2019. What's that award, and what was your product vision that won it?
1: So the award is carried out by an organisation called Product Management Awards. It's based out of New York. I think someone basically who I had worked with had nominated me, which I didn't know at the last minute. And then you kind of go through multiple rounds of interviews sort of thing where they, a panel or a person asks you multiple questions. And I was nominated for two of them. One was a product vision and second was a product leadership. And uh, after multiple rounds, uh, I was awarded the product visionary award. It's not specific to any particular product itself. I think it was based on the work that I had done in recent years in my product leadership roles at various companies.
0: And was that pretty cutthroat? Like, was it a very, uh, was it quite a tasty contest? Or uh, did you get to meet some of the other people that were were involved? or, Or was it sort of arm's length?
1: So I didn't really meet other people. I think the quality of the questions they asked were very good. And it wasn't easy, and I was, I was positively surprised. Like it's, it, it was a good experience overall. Uh, the question was really good. It it didn't seem easy to be honest. Like I was like, whoa, this this uh, this seems like I probably should have prepared for it. And I wasn't even sure that <laughs> <laughs> that I'm gonna get it or anything. And I think even to be honest, like even being nominated itself was the big deal. I was actually traveling when I got the award, so I never got to go and take the trophy on stage and i was invited to new york for that and i was like literally traveling in asia at that time so i still don't have the trophy <laughs>
0: oh so but there wasn't there was a trophy though is that what we're saying yeah, so yeah, somewhere yeah somewhere in new york there's a trophy with your name on it
1: yeah exactly yeah I, I had multiple calls about it because they sent it and it got lost in the post and it went back and all that but never mind <laughs> yeah it's, I, I'm, I'm pretty happy even with the nomination i was happy
0: so, th- so that's good. But, but do you know if that award was running in 2020, and if you're if you've been succeeded, or or if you're still the king of the castle?
1: I think they do it every year. I'm pretty sure it's running this year as well. I haven't checked it, but uh, should be. I think this is around the time, November December, when they announce it. So I will actually. It's a good reminder. I will go and check out. <laughs> so it's always good to know and see people who are coming from the industry because you don't know everyone, and you can go and see their work as well.
0: Absolutely. And, uh, and of course, you can, you can start to uh, start rumours about them if you think that they weren't deserving of the award and that they're not as good as you as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you're a, you're, you're a consultant right now, kind of a, a product big gun for hire. Um, yeah. And I think you've been doing that for a while. It seems that your last few gigs have all been interim fixed contract ever since you left. your. I think Into was your last, last full-time role. Yeah, yeah. So, so why, why did you decide to start consulting? In the first place?
1: I think the, the simplest answer for that is I just, uh, I am a person who always looks for the biggest challenge that I can find and the most variety. I get pretty bored. I get bored pretty easily if the project, if the work is not challenging enough. At Intu, I achieved quite a lot in three and a half, four years there. And then after that, I just wanted to learn new things. So, what I, in fact, do is it's been four years now. I do a mix of both product consulting and interim CPO roles. Product consulting roles are more like one-off projects where I am helping either on my own working with companies or taking working with a team, like with another team of freelancers. And we go into the business and kind of deliver a project. And this could be, because people ask me this question, how can you do a job as a product consultant? Because product is such a, such an important role. I think it's uh, kind of depends on what the company is looking for. So one example would be helping a business set up competency framework for the product managers in the company. So it would be defining their product roles, helping putting their growth plan in place, uh, making it clear for the teams and the PMs and the leaders themselves. So there are many examples like these where I kind of go in and do one-off consulting projects, uh, like defining product strategy as well. And then there's another class or type of service, if you like, is more of an interim CPO. And those are rare to come by, let's say, <laughs> because not uh, when a company realizes that they need a product leader, then they would uh, generally need a full-time person who can spend five days a week. But there are some instances where either a, a business is not able to find the right person, or they haven't hired any product leader before, so they don't know where to start, or they don't understand what value they bring. So I will spend around like six to ten months working with them three, four days a week in an interim capacity. It's it's very much like a full-time role if I was working there as a CPO. I think overall, all this experience, I feel really grateful. And it has, I think it has made me a much better leader, a much better strategist. And I am now I'm able to, after so many years, see patterns of things in various companies and able to analyze that, even though that my job at into I managed an entire product portfolio uh, still now looking at where I sit and stand I can see these patterns which are really useful and applicable and I can add value to the businesses much faster
0: yeah that's good and I think that it, it sounds interesting having that that wide variety of, of, of different experiences and not just kind of getting put down you know one path and and just having experience of that but do you do you tend to work for the same? for the same types of companies so like always b2b or always b2c or always the same sort of stage or or has it been a real mix
1: yeah i would say not at all i don't try to work for in fact the reason i do consulting is so i can work for different type of businesses and different type of projects so it's a it's it's like a double-edged sword i can find work more easily if i had to do the same type of work in the same type of industry but because I'm always kind of looking for things that I have not done before, particularly, so I can learn more and challenge myself more, it generally takes a longer time to find projects. Like some of the interim CPO role discussions have been going on for like five or six months. And then kind of it becomes a thing after that. And that's okay with me because at any point of time, I'm speaking to lots and lots of companies looking into these things. So it it really helps me personally. It, it, I, I'm i pretty satisfied with how everything is going. And, the work I'm doing and the projects I'm getting, like everything that I've done so far, I'm, uh, they were really challenging projects for me. And that's exactly what I was looking for.
0: That's great. But when you do go in, I mean, obviously, as a, as a temporary person, yeah, that's, that's what you're, you're you're kind of, you're going in for a period of time. And do, do you feel that, that that sometimes that makes it difficult to, for example, bond with the teams or get that credibility? Because, you know, you're not there for afterwards, right? So, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. so so, how do you try to try to sort that out so that you can actually be as impactful as you can and not just be seen as like an outsider that's about to go and doesn't really have a long-term stake
1: yeah it's it's first of all it's a really good question because this is in some ways both a blessing and a curse uh, and it happens in every business even before i have stepped into the business there will be people who will be like what the heck is this consultant doing here like why is this here why have they hired that so they all sort of these questions i call this a blessing because. This has forced me to do two things. One is that I need to hit the ground running very soon, like as soon as possible. I don't get the liberty of sitting for a month and try to learn about the business. I have to do that homework even before I start. And then uh, the trust element that you mentioned is really important. So it basically, one of my strategies, if you like, uh, which, which sets me and the business up for success is, start small. So I'm not kind of trying to go in and, either sells, sell like a 10 months project. I want to start as small as possible, even if it means two days or two weeks, because what I want to make sure is that even anything I do in the two days, the team, the leaders, they all kind of see the value that I'm bringing to the table, which really helps uh, me earn their trust and show the quality of my work. And then we can kind of go from there. So these type of things have helped me. Secondly, I'm a bit embarrassed to say, but <laughs> I think uh, when I was in a full-time role earlier that I don't think I was a good leader. There were like uh, so many cringe-worthy things that I've done <laughs> years and years ago. And what what this row, uh, these interim roles uh, forced me to do was to succeed through people, like literally forced me. So there is nothing I can do without people, without relying on them, which means the, the trust element is so crucial. So every time I have to go in, I have to win their trust. And I have to make sure that I am there for to make them successful, not myself successful. And that kind of mindset completely changes the actions that I did. And I'm that type of person who generally kind of takes the things in his hands and runs with it and takes team along. So in my full time roles, I think I was earlier too close to the product, too attached in a way. And now these type of different roles have given me that flexibility to be a better leader in some ways. So that that's the benefit I got.
0: <laughs> that, that sounds great. And obviously, Looking forward to hearing what your next moves are going to be. I know you've got some lined up for the, for the new year as well. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. One of the things I know you are passionate about is is product market fit. So much so that you recently brought out a book on product market fit, as we discussed on in, in the intro. So first question would be, well, what, what made you decide to actually spend the time to write a book?
1: It's, it's a short little interesting story how I came about it. I mean, I wouldn't even call it a book. it's like an ebook, but it's like the size of a book <laughs> <laughs> available for free not 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 selling or anything. basically, while I've been working as a consultant for the last four years, and it's quite is more common in the in the sales world, in the marketing world that they create their playbooks. so I have been creating this consulting playbook, so to speak, which basically helps me understand the clients better, deliver work faster, deliver higher value faster, and kind of have uh, almost like templates and things to go so I can do things faster for the clients. And product market fit has been one of the most common things that I have been helping lots of series A and B startups with. So I work both with startups and with large corporates. But with most startups when I kind of go in, it's it's a series A, B. And what I realize is that I am helping them with the product market fit. So in this playbook, basically, I was collecting all the process, the templates, uh, how I did that, because it is such a broad topic that even if I look across 10 different companies, they reach PMF or product market fit in uh, in a slightly different way. Everyone has a different journey. So I was trying to kind of put some framework around it for myself so I can do the things better. And the more I was doing it is, you know, the knowledge paradox, like the more I did, the more I realized, oh, I really don't understand it. Like there's so much more to it. And I just kept digging, digging, digging as a man. So I spent maybe like uh, four or five months talking to various product leaders, talking to startup founders, looking back at my experience of what worked, what didn't work, basically collecting it all in one single place, and then try to put that in a, in a structure that could be helpful to everyone, including myself. So that's kind of how it came about it. It's very functional in nature. Uh, there's both strategic and tactical advice in there. And I gave like a bunch of talks on that in last couple of weeks, which resonated with people quite well. So I'm quite happy with the response on the, on the book.
0: Yeah, I was going to say I was looking at the website, and you've got a few testimonials already. And, and, and it seems to be being quite well received, certainly by the people that <laughs> the, the people who you've shared their comments about anyway, but have lots of people been been taken up have you got lots of feedback outside of that is it is it landing quite well yes i think
1: uh, overall it is i wouldn't say that it has reached the scale that i expected it to reach maybe because i've just launched it a couple of weeks ago and i am not the one who who does a lot of self-promotion
0: so it's all uh, kind see, of that's the problem <laughs> yeah i
1: mean the thing is that i uh, i have done it to help people not to make money or anything with this so I am the the positive thing so far is that people who have read it, they have come back to me with two types of comments. One is that, hey, this has been very helpful and we have been able to put this into practice right away. I mean, that is a, that is music to my ear. Seriously, I, I love that because if yeah, someone yeah, yeah, is yeah. able to use that, that's exactly my point with it. So I, I, I think what matters some more is that it helps the people who actually spend time looking into it rather than just trying to get more page views and hits and all that. So that's not my intention with this. So it has been uh, uh, quite positive overall from that perspective.
0: And what's one kind of key lesson that we could get from that book? Like, obviously, we don't want you to give it all away because, you know, we want people to download it. Even if it's not just about download numbers, we still want people to download it. But what, what one key lesson from the book?
1: Hmm. Uh, there are so many. I'm just thinking. The lessons for product leaders and startup founders are slightly different. I think one thing probably, uh, first of all, like product market fit is quite a misleading and incomplete term in itself. So there are lots of misconceptions around it. So I think the when I take people through this journey and explain this, the key lesson that they, the aha moment, if you like, is more around, oh, there is more to PMF than MVPs the product doesn't come first. And I'm saying this is a product person, right? Yes, it is really important to have an excellent, a great product to achieve product market fit, but market comes first. And then uh, just a little bit extension of that is that the PMF is, because it's, it's an incomplete term because there's so many other elements to it. So there are four pillars that I often talk about. Uh, market, channel, business model, and product. So these are the four pillars or the four things that need to work in unison for you to have product market fit. Generally, when startups start their business, they work and create a product, they end up in a place where they have a couple of thousand users and still it's not growing or working. And what they find is that they have built a product and now they are in search for a market. So (laughs) it's like they have to, as startups, you have to think about market, product, business model, and distribution channel all at the same time. And market always comes first. And by market, I mean the customer segments, the customers you're seeking. It's almost like, uh, if you want to talk about it, is I think the, the MVP process itself, which was launched a decade ago, is not fully applicable now. And one of the biggest misconceptions is that, hey, we're just going to follow the MVP, build, measure, learn, and we are going to iterate on it. And we are speaking to customers and it's all going to be fine. And we're going to reach PMF. It couldn't. It couldn't be. It's, it's just completely wrong. Like it's. It's not how it works. You have to think about other areas like business model, distribution channel, and other aspects.
0: Yeah. So it's obviously really valid, and, and there's obviously lots of commentary these days about how you know, like you say, MVPs are uh, are not are not quite right for certain use cases, and I guess in many cases it depends on the type of product you're building as well, right? So.
1: Yeah. So the the advice that I give to startups is that, especially the early stage startups because mvp's one is used by uh, existing product teams who just wants to launch a new product or extend a product feature and i think from that perspective it's fine mvp but where it originated from in the lean startup way 10 years ago it was m- much more difficult to build and launch a product so investors and people and teams and all you could you were able to attract great team members you were able to attract investors simply by being the virtue of putting the product out there and getting some constant feedback from the users. So it was really good, and I think part of it still works right now. But what I think if you say, like, what has it changed to, I would say now it's a lot more about traction first. So you need to kind of get users on board. And now there are ways by which, uh, we can go into examples if you like, but you can actually get traction without building a product. And Paul Graham say from uh, Y Combinator talks a lot about building things that don't scale. And so many products that people are building, like marketplaces or or uh, bringing uh, two parties together, you can start that in a non-scalable way, almost like a service, and then learn what product to build from there. So it's more it's now about traction first rather than technology first or product first.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I think anyone that wants to... Uh... Anyone wants to dig into that a bit more, we'll, we'll obviously link the book in the show notes. But it sounds like it's been almost like a, a collection of war stories from yourself that, that can help the next, the next generation do it better, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, you're putting it in a really nice way, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I, so they, these are interesting. I sent the, when I wrote the guide, oh, by the way, there were like number of contributors to this. Uh, just to give a shout out to them because we collectively spend like, although I wrote it by spending 100, 150 hours. There were like lots of time. There was a lot of time spent by three or four other people to go back and forth and challenge my views and many things. So once I completed, I sent it to the companies I had worked with, the startups, and the comments I got from there was this one person said, like this feels like a time machine. (laughs) That we (laughs) (laughs) that we had gone through this process and this worked, this didn't work. And it's true, like the war stories you mentioned. Like one of the things in in the framework that I talk about is hair on fire problem. (laughs) And I mean, the reason I use that word is because I want to have the strong emotion because it's quite easy for us to settle on a problem that seems quite important to solve. But in reality, it's not really hair on fire problem. So what I found was quite often that you have this collection of problems that you think you can solve for the customers and how do you prioritize. And then uh, for that, I've come up with like two things. One is, which is like a pain importance versus pain intensity. So how how important that problem is, because it could be important, but it may not be intense, right? It may not be yeah. crea- having any negative impact on you, which leads me to what I refer as POI, which is problem, impact, and environment. So any problem that you, you, even in your product that you work on, if you do not consider the impact it's having on the end user. And you're not considering the environment in which that problem is living, then uh, you will not be able to create a product which will enable a behavior change on customers' end. Because if there is a problem, they are able to solve it in some way or another today. And if it's an intense problem, which means it's impacting them in a really negative way and they are actively looking for solutions. So, especially in the early stage startups, when you're building a product, you want to address a pain point for which. Customers are already looking for solutions and it's impacting them in a negative way.
0: Yeah. And and there's obviously then the kind of the traditional crossing the chasm type thing then where you're sort of, you're doing that, but you're, you're really sub-segmenting your audience or your market to make sure that you're solving a problem that is really important to a bunch of people that is relatively small and, and achievable. Yeah, totally. I don't know if that's all covered in the book as well or if that's...
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's it's quite an interesting point, actually. Like, so this is quite counterintuitive when people think about it because it's like in the early stages, which I refer as like a problem-solution-fit stage, let's say you are a B2C app, an iOS app or something, and you have thousands of users. Now, at this point, you have probably got there by thinking, hey, this is the exact customer we are focusing on. This is the exact target type or the customer type or persona type. And we are going to niche our service based on that. But what you have to realize is that that is based on a hypothesis of what the user is or can be, right? And what you realize is when you launch a product, when you get to that, that mid level scale, you have such a broad spectrum of users who are, some are using the and, the, and your product usage is quite random. So some users are using it more, some are using it less. So one of the things that I advise is like, Rather than thinking niche and then broad, you actually are doing broad customer segment first because you are putting the product out there and you just want to know and see who uses your product. And then you kind of do your segmentation based on those users and say, okay, now we know that this, this product is resonating most with this type of users because it's solving this intense hair on fire problem. And then from there, you kind of go on and say niche users now. So I think to find the product market fit, you have to really discover the right type of audience and initially you will go broad and then you will go go narrow in terms of finding that audience and then you kind of start the the journey of uh, building mvp uh, validating the market size for new segments and then kind of finding a distribution channel uh, one of the biggest problems that i have seen that pms and even and startup founders make is they just forget about the distribution channel till late And they are already like in the early stages, they're trying to use growth tactics like Facebook ads here or Instagram ads or doing SEO stuff. Like they're doing tons of things. Whereas when you're discovering this customer segment you mentioned about, you have to also figure out how are you going to acquire those type of users in a customer segment. And if the segmentation is good, whether it's by behavior, by geography, by industry, then you are also thinking of how... And where are those people hanging out? And that's how kind of you acquire those users. So basically focusing on one channel at a time to acquire the the users in the customer segment.
0: Yeah, it's kind of the opposite of like Field of Dreams, right? Where you're saying like, it's not just that if you build it, they're going to come because actually you need to work out how to go and get them.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think that's totally right. That's why I, I think like this is a step. In fact, I also miss that. So you think like who is responsible for PMF, right? And generally, it will be your startup founders, it will be PMs, designers, uh, even engineer or a CTO, right? Companies or startups don't always think to put marketers in that group, if you like. And I believe that in many ways, especially when you're figuring out the customer segment and the right channel, you need to have even closer collaboration between product and marketing in comparison to product and technology. Because it's again, it's not just about building the product, releasing the features, getting the product ready. It's about figuring out who is the right customer, how are you going to acquire it? Are you getting them or not? What's what's your loop basically, your acquisition and growth loop from there?
0: Yeah, and I think that it's it's a fairly common anti-pattern that you see around where like product is seen as almost part of engineering or kind of really closely linked to engineering. And then obviously, of course, you now get the the sort of a movement in the direction of say product marketing as a, as a, as a function as well, which I think is, is really good because you, you need to get that, you, you need, you need to be able to cover both angles. Like you say, it can't just be about feature factories and, and, you know, turning the handle. I think you're absolutely yeah. right. are just having that eye on the market is, is absolutely critical because otherwise there's no way you're going to know what to build.
1: Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. One thing on that is like a, something about distribution channels and again this doesn't register quite well is quite easily with the with the pms that if you are a startup and you can even find just single distribution channel that works for your business you have product market you can reach product market fit right because the challenge i see is even for marketers who are very experienced it's quite uncomfortable for them to put all their eggs in one basket and and try out try to make one channel work because just one marketing one distribution channel itself could take months and months to find and validate so it's a it's a quite a big strategic decision uh, two starters with two exactly same products can have very different level of success based on how they acquire their customers
0: uh, absolutely so do you have any plans to monetize the book at all at any point or are you basically doing this as a kind of a service to the the, the wider product industry
1: I think I would, I would like to say it's a service to the wider product industry because I do like <laughs> to help. But the reality is that I have already been kind of got, I have already had like increased number of incoming inquiries from investors, from uh, founders, from startups to kind of look for these things. I mean, uh, I, uh, what I do do is, although I don't necessarily work with early stage startups uh, before they have raised in funding. I generally do speak to them on a pro bono basis, like spending hours here and there, to just advise them and guide them a little bit, so they can get on the right path, basically. So it's it's a bit of a service. I'm trying to help people, but it's also like for me to get for me to get better in doing what I do. Because one of the talks I gave recently, there were so many good questions which challenged some of my viewpoints on that. And even when I was talking to product leaders, as an example. This question kept coming back to me, which was What if you don't have a hair on fire problem? Like, can you have a business then? Or, how do you find a hair on fire problem in a luxury market, as an example? So, there are questions like this which make me think okay, there are various gaps. And then I, I'm getting more questions around the early part, which is getting from uh, like an idea stage to the MVP stage. Earlier, I explained about the traction first principle if you like so it's it's those kind of things that i need to talk about more and explain more
0: so it sounds like there's a a version two already in the in the offing then Uh, well at least in discussion (laughs) Uh, that's great and it's it's obviously good that it's been a driver of additional context and and knowledge for you as well which is obviously one of the the best reasons to write or, or be involved in anything so i think that's really that sounds really great yeah, thanks. And I will definitely read it as soon as, not as soon as I, I finish this uh, interview, but 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 pretty soon, just just to make sure that I've got my money where my mouth is. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I have actually recorded a short video of 15-20 minutes uh, to summarize the whole thing, because I know some people prefer video over reading like a full book, so that could be a good way to get the gist of it as well.
0: I'll I'll link it all in. And uh, you, you mentioned it earlier. About one of the things that that you you do for companies, uh, and one of the things that I know that you're, you're you're generally quite passionate about is building growth plans for product managers and career paths. And it's something that in in my time I've I've been quite curious about because it's not it's not generally a very structured career path. It's not like you have a like a, a degree in, in in product, and then you you have like a a planned approach through loads of stages and stuff. And and, and there aren't a lot of great examples. So. So what, what are some of your growth principles for product managers and, and the career path that they can take?
1: It's, a, it's, it's a quite an important thing. So one is about how people get into product. Like you mentioned, the career trajectories are quite different. And then and even if you see internally how they have become product managers or product owners, and it all kind of comes down to the product sense or product thinking, especially amongst leaders in that business. Like how do they see product? And some, some teams I go, they have like a comp- really like fluid product owner roles that the the people who are doing the roles themselves don't even understand what the role is about. So most of the times earlier when I started doing this, I kind of thought like, hey, if I build this competency framework which is applicable to almost or to majority of the companies because the things that you need to do as as a PM, whether it's about focus on the customer, working with engineering, or looking into the market insights and all that thing the, those things are all valid to all types of roles and the depth of uh, how much you go into each of those categories like exploring customer needs and all that that varies on your seniority of the role itself like how much ambiguity can you work with and that will kind of define you as a lead pm or not but what i found after working with multiple companies was that that doesn't that doesn't hold true uh, it's not a simple match of depth of an area like customer needs with the level of the pm so the what i've found is that is the product roles are almost bespoke to the business you have to understand how they are currently building the product how uh, what their current processes are what kind of pm do they need do they do they need more commercial focus pm do they need more engineering focus pm and what are the gaps in the business that the person needs to fill? So I have to almost like use that framework as a baseline and then to try to create more bespoke versions and explain the process. Like I'll give you just one quick example. One of the companies I went in, they had uh, around eight different product owners who were basically, and this is a this is a company of around 70, 80 people, highly motivated people who want to take on product roles, who basically saw the problems that were happening in terms of delivering the product, and they just jumped right in, they raised their hand up, and they start doing it. But ultimately, it wasn't working at all for any of them. Like, engineers were frustrated, and POs were frustrated as well. Like, what is this? And I think uh, the crux of that was when I started working with them, was that the understanding of the product owner role, or the product manager role in that case, was quite poor throughout the organization. So they didn't have any product leader in place. And so my first kind of job was to uh, work with all of them, to understand the requirement, define the framework. And then my starting point was those those eight PMs. And I sat with each one of them individually and tried to kind of describe this is what the role is. Now, it wasn't, I wanted to make sure they have a realistic view of what the role is. And out of eight of those, like five or six of them decided not to take that role and go back to their previous role. <laughs> and I'm not saying like, oh, I just scared them away or something. I think it's more of a, people realize like how difficult it is. Like some, the comments I get were like, so there are no upsides with the product role. You have no, you're doing everything by influence. You have no power. You can't tell people like, so they, because people have these misconceptions. And once they realize that this is a role which requires juggling so many things and it's like no clarity, it it scares people as well a little bit sometimes. So I think you want to have the right people in the role and the right explanation of the role, so the uh, there can be alignment between what leaders expect you to do and what you do as well.
0: That makes a lot of sense. So, uh, and and I completely agree. It, it, there seems to be so much variability between what the product teams are, are responsible for and what the people on the product teams are, are responsible for. So, I think you know, like even having a, a framework for that, that, that as a starting point, which you can then customize, still feels really valuable. So. Yeah, sounds pretty good, so one thing that we talked about before this interview was how you um <laughs> how you you dislike cringeworthy linkedin content that and made up stories that make you <laughs> puke in your mouth and have reduced your usage of LinkedIn because you're so disgusted by it now I'm not asking you to name any names but but what kind of content are you are you thinking of
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh- I mean, yeah, I, I don't want to take a dig on it, but in general <laughs> there is so much LinkedIn content which people are just creating for the for the sake of those fifteen likes or twenty likes like becoming popular. <laughs> like writing the stories, writing like one paragraph in singular line single line each and those humble brags and all that. I think uh it's like with any other social network out there, uh, LinkedIn has a signal versus noise problem. Like I I do love the platform because it allows me to stay in touch with uh, some people from my network but it's it's to find really good content i mean personally because i am i i don't like to waste time in these things so every time i see someone who's like posting all this type of content i will just go and unfollow them or mute them <laughs> even if they are in my network and oh, one th- strike and you out huh no i mean i'm not that like it's still like i think i would rather if i'm spending 15 20 minutes then i would rather do it engage with someone who's posting some quality content and actually trying to help others and work with others and then linkedin algorithms for showing things in your feed are not very good either so that's another challenge that you kind of so as an example you you get i'm sure you also get like lots of incoming requests as well one of the reasons i don't add random people is because linkedin prioritizes the new connection request right on the top so anything that anyone is posting from a new connection will always be showing up again and again. And if you if you don't even have a relationship with that person and someone randomly uh, connected with you, then you're being spammed with someone's content when you, do, you don't even engage with it. So it's that type of thing, basically. I think it's like uh, as a user, I have to work quite hard to find good content
0: it sounds like you're angling for a product management job at <laughs> linkedin now to try and sort out some of their mess
1: i, I wouldn't mind advising them <laughs>
0: <laughs> but 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 off the back of that then i guess would linkedin still be the best place for people to uh, to connect with you yeah that, that's absolutely fine yeah
1: i think linkedin or my website harpelsing.com, that's both are fine with me that's the one
0: i use cool i'll i'll again make sure that's linked in the show notes thank you well, there's much more we could talk about, but uh, I obviously realise that I've kept you for for long enough. But it's been a fantastic chat, and obviously really interested to to read the new book, and and hopefully you'll get a lot more take up on it.
1: Yeah, thanks, Jason.
0: And uh, yeah, let's uh, let's keep in touch, and uh, and and have a have a have a good weekend.
1: Yeah. Thanks a lot, Jason. Thanks a lot. It, it's uh, the time passed so quickly. <laughs> I do want to say like, I don't, I think I didn't get a chance. Like I love your podcast name, One Night in Product. I think that's like one of the best ones I've heard and I'm recommending it to everyone already. So pretty good. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for
0: uh, having me on, on the
1: podcast. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. You can get a link to the Product Market Fit playbook in the show notes. Please share both it and this episode with all your friends and subscribe on the podcast app of your choice. We'll be back soon, but for now, thank you and good night.